0: I think it's extremely important for all officers to go through this experience and to have some realization as to what policing actually represented to people in our communities. Policing, unfortunately, doesn't have the best history. Police officers were responsible in this country not too long ago for enforcing laws that were inherently racist. And of course, we don't police that way today, But people who live through that experience may not know that. So, one of the things that we all have to do as police officers is when we're dealing with folks in the community, we have to have that realization in our mind that there may be some people who live through that experience who are going to be understandably uncomfortable with the police when you arrive. And it's going to be your responsibility to overcome that, to let that person know that we are the good guys, we are here to help you and we're not representations of those folks from our past.
1: What you just heard was Metropolitan Police Department Chief Peter Newsom in an address to police officers taking part in a new department-wide training on policing in the historical and cultural context of the district. We're going to learn more about that training and how we're evaluating it on this episode of The Podcast at D.C. The Podcast at D.C. is hosted by The Lab at D.C. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the Mayor for the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. Followers of The Lab at D.C. may be familiar with one of our first projects, which was a collaboration with D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department or MPD for short. We were working to evaluate the impact of wearing a body-worn camera on many outcomes. Among these were our best existing measures of police-community relations, namely complaints of police misconduct and the rate at which officers use physical force in interacting with a community member. In case you forgot, let me remind you of the results. We found, across all those outcomes and others, almost no measurable effect of using a body-worn camera in DC. Now, MPD still uses body-worn cameras, but we as a district think of them more as a vital source of public record for high-profile events, and less as a tool to improve community relations as a result of that evaluation. So if we still believe there is room for improvement in police-community relations in DC, the logical question is what's next? To MPD's credit, they've tried something new, and importantly, they chose to evaluate it in the most rigorous possible way. Let me tell you a little bit about this new project. Now we know that police officers and residents often have different expectations about policing and those expectations inform how a police officer interacts with a community member and vice versa. Acknowledging this difference and its role in shaping overall police community relations, MPD sought to equip officers with more detailed knowledge of the community. So working with history professors from the University of the District of Columbia, MPD developed a new training program to be delivered to all personnel. The training includes rigorous classroom instruction on the history of the district, as well as a tour of the wonderful National Museum of African American History and Culture. What you're about to hear is a special live episode of the podcast at DC recorded in the spring of 2019. We will hear a panel discussion from the team that assembled this new program, including the professors from UDC, MPD's training team, officers who participated in the program, and lab fellow Anita Shankar, who all worked together to ensure that the training was effective. We'll also hear from members of the community who want to know how this training might improve their lives as D.C. residents. Let me turn it over to our moderator for the live podcast, Heather Foster, a thought leader and subject matter expert on race and public policy, and a former White House public engagement advisor.
2: Well, welcome, everyone, again. Thank you so much for the introduction. I'm excited to be here today and hear from all these wonderful panelists that we have here. So we're going to dive right in to the details of the training over the course of this panel. But can you all give us a 30-second overview of what it's
1: going to entail? First, we'll hear from Director Marvin Heyman and Commander Ralph Ennis of MPD, who oversee much of the training and professional development in the police department. After them will be Dr. Sherita Thompson and Dr. Bernard Demchuk, who developed the curriculum in conjunction with MPD and delivered it to all sworn officers in the force, as well as civilian members of MPD.
3: So thank you all for joining us today. I hope you will hear about the way that MPD continues to be one of the most innovative departments across the country, really setting the stage for and providing meaningful training to our officers on issues that are germane to every discussion across communities in this country. Our officers are learning and experiencing history at the hands of some of our esteemed professors and really learning more about the community than we've historically provided to officers.
4: So one of the things that, as the nation's capital, is we have officers that come from all over the country that want to be the police in this historic city. Because of that, we try to focus um, this training on understanding the significance of the police interaction in the African-American community, and so that the officers that do come from places outside of D.C. understand our culture and understand the history so that they can better serve the community.
5: And after today, I hope you get some sense of what we're doing in the classroom and some understanding of what we're trying to achieve through this program.
6: And I think that what we're seeing now clearly is that our police force reflects the city's population, not only from all parts of the country, but from all over the world. We get a lot of police officers from Africa, from Central America, the Caribbean, South America, the Middle East, And we get, certainly, officers from Asia, and they're from all over, and they really do represent our city appropriately. And that's one of the key components of why Metropolitan Police Force continues to advance in its operations.
1: Now we'll hear from Director Heyman and Commander Ennis about the genesis of this new training.
2: So I will definitely say that when I was at the White House, one of the topics that came up a lot was about the police departments and training. And we've heard of other police departments taking implicit bias training, but this seems like something fairly new and very different in its approach. What was the inspiration for this training, and why is this something that MPD felt was important for the entire department to experience?
3: So I'll jump in on that particular question. So we're very fortunate in the nation's capital to have a lot of resources here in this city. We've also been very fortunate to be progressive in terms of the training that we provide to the officers. Just a few years ago, the National Museum of African American History and Culture was a new museum in the city, and our chief was fortunate enough to kind of think of this as an opportunity to provide meaningful training to all of our officers. He, with his immediate family and some others, went through the museum, and that experience, and you'll hear about that shortly, gave a very profound impact on him. And it was kind of a catalyst of experience for him that said, you know, this is something that our police officers really need to know more about in the city and really to take advantage of the experience of having the museum. We are fortunate enough to work with the University of District of Columbia, UDC, and our two professors to come up with a very unique program that dives far beyond the traditional implicit bias training. Our department, and I know the commander can speak more to this, has provided implicit bias training to our officers for many, many, many years, far before it was a national buzzword and departments were really starting to roll that out into the curriculum. But this is really another level. This is an experiential learning experience. And so there's two different pieces to it, not only for our in-service members, where we've had about 2,400 people go through the training so far, but also for our recruit officers in the academy, where they participate in a two-day training, not only one day at the museum itself, in the classroom, but a second day walking in the community to learn more about the history of varying neighborhoods throughout the city. And it really allows our officers to learn the history of the areas that they're working, to appreciate the value of history in policing, and to be better informed as they go out and work in our communities every day.
4: Yeah, I think when you look at DC and the history in DC, going back through the civil rights movement, and even before, DC's kind of been a progressive city throughout the years with our police department, hiring black officers, and many other things that Bernie teaches our members. but. One of the things that you have to understand, especially um, when you're dealing with segments of our community, is you have to understand why they feel why they do about the police. And I think that sending our officers through this tour that they do at the museum <laughs> lays the groundwork for them to learn things they weren't taught in school, right? And in the plight of the African American in the United States, especially dealing with the police, and therefore when they go for calls for service or they're out interacting in the public and they, you know, they come across an older person who might not have the best feelings for the police, specifically some of our officers. It lets them understand why that may be so they can change their approach and how they're interacting with those people and maybe be able to provide better service.
2: And how does this fit into the other training that MPD provides?
4: So we spend a lot of time at the Metropolitan Police Department making sure that our officers understand that policing is not about arresting people and that everything that they see on TV is exactly the opposite of what we expect from our police officers. We start that from day one. And as a matter of fact, I talk to every class that comes in explaining what I expect of them from that day forward so they can learn from the proper mindset when they come in the door. But what this does is it's just one piece of us teaching the officers about the community they serve so that they can better serve. And the thing about policing is is that there's no one thing that an officer can do to be successful in policing a community because communities are so diverse, Even not even city to city, but neighborhood to neighborhood. And you really have to understand where the neighborhood's have issues so that you can address them. And this particular course is one piece of us doing that. And let me emphasize, this is one segment of our community. We do a lot of other trainings talking about Latino communities or Asian communities. Why uh, when you go for a call for service, somebody may cooperate or not cooperate with you. So, you know, we really want a whole police officer who understands what policing is truly about in the city.
3: Another thing that's just been very important about this program for our officers, if you think really when this program came into origination and even today, the national narrative around policing, we see in every paper, it's almost impossible to open up any sort of social media, much less print media, and not see the police on the front page with some controversy or perceived controversy. For many of our officers, this is an opportunity in this class to ask questions, to challenge each other, to challenge the professors to talk about these issues. When officers are going about their day-to-day, there's not necessarily that same forum to really have meaningful conversations about what they're seeing and what their families are asking them about. And I know the professors will speak a little later, too, to the impact that they've heard from some of the officers. But really, that open dialogue has been a huge and, I think, an underestimated piece in the beginning of this training.
2: And can you just walk us through the long-term or big-picture vision for preparing officers here in the city to serve?
4: I mean, I think the biggest thing we have to do is we have to understand what the problems are in the community and realize that you have to think through the solutions to these problems. And one thing's not going to fit everything. We're hiring a very educated officer these days. The vast majority, 85, 90 percent of our officers in our classes have four-year degrees. There's one or two in every class that has a master's degree. And You know, by having a person who's better at critical thinking and thinking through problems, you know, we have an officer that can be more impactful in the community that they serve. It's understanding that, you know, in some situations deserve an arrest, some don't, and teaching them to be able to work through those situations and make good decisions that leave the particular people in the community as a whole in a better place than they were before they called us. For years and years and years, and one thing that I've been through the class, and one thing that struck me is a statement somebody made is that depending on where you live in the United States, say 40, 50 years ago, calling the police did not help you. In a lot of places, it made things worse. And that cannot happen here. And I think all of the decisions from the chief to Ben to me that we make are geared towards making sure that they understand that.
2: Thank you. All right. I want to shift a little bit now to the curriculum and hear from Dr. Bernard Demchuk and Dr. Sharita Thompson. Just give us a little bit more clear insight about how did you curate this curriculum? There's clearly a lot of material here, but a short period of time in which to deliver. So let's talk a little bit about what this curriculum meant. Okay, so initially,
5: when we were brought on to do this program, we had a meeting with all of the wonderful trainers over at NPD to kind of discuss and talk through what the objectives are and what they wanted to achieve here. So that gave us an opportunity to sit down and help to develop a curriculum alongside the trainers who were already at MPD. And then we put the curriculum together, then we rolled it out, and believe me, it's changed Over time, based on the feedback that we've received from the officers, every class we have a debriefing and we have taken their feedback very seriously and worked it into the curriculum and made adjustments as necessary. So Bernie and I have been through the museum several times. It changes, so that gives us an opportunity to change it a little bit there as well as the exhibits in the museums change, especially as we can point directly and make correlations between what we do in the classroom, because we actually have three hours in a classroom setting before we go to the museum, and that gives us the opportunity to have a lot of dialogue with the officers before we actually leave, and it actually prepares them a lot. We found over time that the officer said, you know, having that time in the classroom really prepares them for what they were going to see once we went to the museum. So it opens up an opportunity for dialogue. I ask a lot of prompt questions during class that gets us talking, but it also prepares them for what they're going to deal with throughout the day as we tour the museum.
6: We do the full 400-year experience. We don't just talk about policing in America in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that everybody's pretty well familiar with. We don't even start, as a matter of fact, in America. We start in Africa because to understand African culture then begins to understand African-American culture, which then helps us understand American culture. So we actually start early on in the morning at 6 o'clock with African culture moving through the Atlantic slave trade, moving into slavery, moving into Jim Crow, moving into mass incarceration, and we don't pull any punches at all. We go deep into 400 years of, unfortunately, police being on the wrong side of history for over 300 years. So we take seriously the truth in our own history in America.
2: So both of you are experts and have lectured in many other contexts. What's different about delivering this material specifically to a classroom full of police officers? Well, I think there's really no difference.
5: When I'm in a classroom with my students, you find very easily that they are not as equipped to handle these conversations. Sometimes they come from different vantage points, they come from different backgrounds, they come from different countries. So actually what we do in this classroom is very reflective of what we might do in a classroom on a college campus, because These are folks who come from different backgrounds, different places, and have their own understanding about this interaction between police and the black community. So I think, you know, these officers vary, as we spoke about earlier. They're coming from different places. They've had their own experiences. One of my prompt questions is, what was your first interaction with a police officer, right? And it varies. I mean, we've heard some very sad stories about very young children who are having these interactions and how it actually inspired them to become members of the police department because they wanted to change that, right? But then we have the wonderful stories about how they were inspired because the police officer speaking in the classroom talks about how the police in their community looked out for them because they had a single mother. And so those police in the community looked out for them as their mothers were going off to work two or three jobs. So I think my experience in teaching the police officers in the classroom has not been very different than teaching students in a traditional classroom setting; They all come from different vantage points and have different experiences that they bring to the conversation.
6: I would go a step further and say that actually our police are very curious. They're like any other student, but because they have so many experiences,
0: mm-hmm.
6: deep experiences in the streets mm-hmm. of the community, they become even more experienced and become more curious about what they're learning. They will almost automatically be very suspicious of us. I mean, police should be suspicious anyway. They're looking around, they're seeing what's going on, what's wrong, but they're suspicious of us because we are professors and we try to create an atmosphere in a classroom that's a lot more open. For example, I always start the class off with a bad joke and my jokes are so bad that they're funny. For example, what do you call an alligator in a vest? An investigator. (laughs) Now, that's such a bad joke that everybody laughs, and we start off with that, and I start in the morning with, we don't know anything about policing. That relaxes them, because they're not going to hear a lecture from us about policing. And then we go into really understanding who they are. We ask who they are. They tell us who they are. And we don't teach by lecturing. We teach in the Socratic method, which means we ask questions. By asking questions, they immediately start with the answers they participate, then it becomes their class, not our class. And I will tell you, they like to learn and they're good learners. So they really feel
2: engaged and a part of the program. Now we know that there are so many long lines to get into the museum, there's daily visitors. Just tell us a little bit about what is it like when you bring police officers into the museum? Do you all get any engagement from the people there? Does the staff say anything? That reaction varies as well. (laughs) Most of the time it's curiosity
5: because they wear their uniforms. So, of course, you know, first it's like, what's going on? Right. (laughs) Like, it's their emergency we need to know about. And then you have people who will actually come up and ask an individual officer, why are you here? And so then that gives MPD officers an opportunity to engage with the public, to let them know why they are there touring the museum, just like the thousands of visitors that are coming through there that day. And some of it's difficult when you see police officers in uniform standing in front of a screen seeing you know, the civil rights movement and the interaction between police. I always like to look at them as they're watching those videos and look at the people who are surrounding them as they're watching those videos and try to engage them in the debrief as to how that made them feel. So the reactions vary, but most of all is curiosity. Why are you here? And that opens up a wonderful opportunity for the police officers to have those conversations with people who are coming from all over the world right. to engage that museum.
6: So you, you don't know who the visitors are, and many of the visitors are police officers on vacation. And they often come up and they see police learning history and touring, and they come engage us. And then they go back to Sacramento and Denver and Pittsburgh. These are actual experiences and they tell their chief and their chief calls our chief. And then we have a dialogue about this kind of learning that can spread throughout the country. As a matter of fact, that's happening now. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: Now let's turn to Officer Melvin Evans and Sergeant Isla Wiggins of MPD to hear about their experience with this new training.
2: Just walk us through some of the key takeaways from this training.
7: Well, I can start off by saying I just wanted to applaud my police department for even acknowledging the cultural differences and the things that Afro-Americans have gone through. I think we have a tendency to forget about negative things that have happened in our past, but sometimes that can propel our future and our history as we go forward. But sometimes people feel neglected that you never appreciated all our efforts or the things that were contributed to making this country or the history of this country. So when you can stop and say, hey, you know, there were things that happened in the past. We can't go back and replay it and make things different. But in the future, we can go back together as a nation, as Washington, D.C., and just look at things and see if we could do things a lot differently. Because at the end of the day, everybody wants to be treated fairly, and they don't want the rights violated because of the color of their skin.
8: For me, I was totally surprised. For us in our department, this is the... First training where we're sitting and we are addressed by the chief before anything. And I thought that that captured my attention immediately. Not only is my chief saying that this training is important, I want you to pay attention, and I expect you to get something out of this because we're responsible for making sure that we engage the community and bridge that gap. So immediately my attention was heightened from that, to see my leader address me in that way for a training. In my mind, I was just like, well, what, what's what's going to happen next? <laughs> <laughs> because that's not typical. And again, he said that this was important. So from there, I really enjoyed the whole setup. I enjoyed the briefing. And it was a bit of an icebreaker, the way that we were engaged. It allowed us to be able to talk, have an open discussion, and be able to express ourselves as from our experiences prior to coming on to the police department and our experiences on the job, because you know, my experience can be very different from his, or they can be one and the same, although we wear the same uniform, you know, that we police in a diverse city. So I was totally impressed. I was impressed. I was proud. And then going through the tour, you know, we did have people looking around at us like, mm-hmm. you know, what are you doing <laughs> in, here? Right, right. <laughs> you know, but for me, I was in total awe at how intentional the training was mm-hmm. and how in-depth We went in, and even afterwards with the whole debriefing, it was a wonderful setup that at the end of it all, I really felt responsible. I said, you know, I felt at the end that I was responsible to engage in the healing process between the police and the community.
7: Mm -hmm. I think it opens the door for more introspection to look at yourself to see what your race played in history, this, that, and the other. We know there was a lot of struggles in history coming into the United States of America. Not only the Afro-American community, but a lot of immigrants that came into this country suffered. And it wasn't just at the hands of the law enforcement, it was just the way the world was at that time. We always try to find things that separate us, but when you can look at things that pull us together. This is American history, which everybody has a part, or their relatives played a part, grandparents on. And when you can actually find your part, and find out that, you know what, well, we all had some struggles. We all had a lot of accomplishments. There's things that we did together. You know, I tell people there's good and bad in everything. But when we can just stop looking at the negative and look at the positive things and pull off of that, and feed that, it really brings us closer together. Because instead of saying that, you know, we can see our differences, but look, we have family that we all love and care about, when you can start looking at the things that have an importance in your life and that your family gets treated fairly. And regardless of the situation, that you know that they can look at law enforcement and say, hey, can you help me? And that the response is, yes, I am here to help you. It's a different change. And it brings out a bigger, I guess, feeling because a lot of people live with their fears, their fears to see something new or to talk to somebody different or to try a new food. But when you realize that you know we can let go of some of those fears and that you're just as normal, as natural as I am, and we're all in a struggle together trying to live and have a better humanity then it kind of makes you just feel a little bit closer to the people that are around you.
8: And a lot of that fear just comes from not knowing. And so now that we have this information, it's like, well, what do you do with all of this information? And believe me, for the day, you are absorbing tons of information. But the information is not enough. You know, you could take in a lot of information and it just goes in one ear and out the other. But when you couple that with your experience as a law enforcement officer with that, you create a better understanding, not only an understanding with the people that you're engaging in, but also the people that you're working with every day. There's a greater understanding, a greater connection that you have. And once you have that, now we have a shift in thinking. You know, We have a new pattern of thinking, and now that process of thinking now affects the way that we behave, the way we interact how we see people, and that's really the important part of policing today, is not only to be able to help stop crime, but able to engage for, you know, crime prevention, because it's truly a partnership, and once you have a better understanding of people, you are able to help them to the best of your ability.
2: And would you say trust is at the root of that partnership?
8: Absolutely, definitely. You know, without it, we cannot be effective. We will not be effective Mm -hmm. in our duties. So in doing that, I mean, the bottom line is, is that we are called to defend the constitutional rights of all people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is our job. That is how we help. And it's not just about making arrests. It's also about getting down to the basics, knowing who you are, you know, knowing the officers that serve you Us getting the chance to know you and just being comfortable having a conversation, it starts there. And it can lead to a myriad of other things of discussion.
2: Right. So we have some snapshots of other participants. Just going back again to tell you a little bit about the demographics of the police force at this point. We're looking at 50% are African-American, 35% white American, uh, 10% Latino and Hispanic, and 4% Asian. And so we've seen through these quotes, right, it was therapy, a very much needed training to address the current times, policing without knowledge of the communities, of people's history, customs and cultures is like a branch without a tree. The tree of history has roots before the new branches and leaves grow into its environment. Eye-opening, great idea, exposes information. And you would say that this is generally how your class feels. And
8: Yes, it was intense. It was definitely intense training.
7: I think you start off in the morning, I think a lot of people feel very knowledgeable about the history and what they know, and then at the end of the day, when they find something out that they did not know, or found out how law enforcement really impacted the Afro-American community, they're like, wow, I didn't know all this happened, I didn't know this took place. And it's an eye-opener. Like I said, it allows for introspection, to look at how history was Now, how can this change me? If it doesn't do anything, I really believe that it raises the officer's level of awareness so that as I engage the next person, I can think about why they may be coming off this way to me, that I don't have to take it personally, You know that everybody has a right to have their feelings, this, that, and the other, but to know that this person is in a time of their need. They need help, and that's when people like you can find them at their worst. And so when we can make people feel better after our interaction with them, that's a better thing because I always believe that The last impression you leave with somebody, they're going to live with that. And the only thing that can actually help change a bias is a great interaction with someone, something that makes you change because you wasn't expecting it. You wasn't expecting this police officer to be nice to me today or to even ask me that I need some help today. You know, just those little kind gestures that we sometimes forget about in society really go a long way. And it can all start with hello, and it doesn't cost anybody anything to do that. And a lot of officers come on this job because they want to create change. Maybe there was an injustice to their family or to themselves, and they're like, this is my opportunity to make a difference. And that's what a lot of law enforcement officers in D.C. want to make a positive change.
2: So my final question for you both is, what do you think the long term, and you've talked a little bit about this in terms of the partnership and the engagement that you want to have with the community, but long term, how do you see this changing the police force here in D.C.?
8: Well, we're not going to always be here, mm-hmm. you know, our chief is not going to always be here. But the police department is. And I think that I applaud the chief and our executive staff for putting this training together for all of our swarm members, for our civilians, for our recruits, because the training is going to impact for generations down the line on this department. So it creates a deeper understanding. It's gonna mold everyone as they progress throughout the department. Everyone starts off the same. Everyone starts off that patrol officer in that car down to the chief. But training like this is different and it is vital, it's critical, and it's something that will be you know, ingrained throughout their career, throughout their lives.
7: I think it offers a lot of hope, a hope for, you know, the interaction with the community on the officer's standpoint, and then for the community and looking at police officers in general, because we know how social media can always taint an officer's engagement or a situation without us even knowing the whole story that took place. But we feed off or it seems like social media feeds off the negativity. How often do you see so much of the positive things that officers do? And yeah, we know it's our job, but sometimes it's nice to know that those officers or these officers are doing something different. So I applaud my department on taking these efforts because I think we all want a hope for a better future, a hope for a better Washington, D.C., and as far as bridging these gaps in community, just looking at everybody, that we're having more diversity and that we all can come together for our families and for humanity.
1: The last panelist we'll hear from is Anita Ravishankar, a research fellow with our own lab at D.C. and with MPD, who is heavily involved in ensuring the success of the training and its evaluation.
2: Thank you. So I want to switch over now to talk to Anita, who is our research scientist here, and we've had some compelling anecdotal evidence today around the effects of this training. we have just hearing personally from the officers themselves. But I know MPD is also working with the lab to conduct a rigorous scientific evaluation. So, Anita, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
9: Yes. Thanks, Heather. This is a great transition point. So, as we just heard from Officer Evans and Sergeant Wiggins, as well as from Dr. Thompson and Dr. Demchek, it's hard to imagine that this training isn't having some sort of effect on our officers, right? The content is really powerful. People are clearly responding to that training, and it's delivered in a very compelling manner with both the lecture and the museum tour components that have been described earlier. So I just want to take a step back and say, you know, we have a participant who concludes we need more of this training, but we actually want to know how can we answer that question, right? Do we actually need this? Is it having these effects kind of broadly across the department, and how do we go about figuring that out? So, going back to this sort of theory of change here, which was articulated earlier by Ben and Commander Ennis, we have a hypothesis here about how this training will work, right? So, police officers and residents have different backgrounds, different experiences, different training that they go through, and that would affect the interactions that they have, right? They both bring a different set of expectations or beliefs to these interactions, and that can shape how the interaction proceeds. And all of that you know, is something we want to keep in mind. And then the goal here with this training, of course, is to say, you know, we serve a very large, in particular in D.C., an African-American community here, and we need to equip our officers with a more detailed knowledge of the local community and context in which they're working. And if we give them this information, we help bridge this gap that they can be more effective in engaging the community, as all of our panelists have spoken to. So this is the hypothesis. It seems that it's bearing out, at least in the anecdotal evidence, but we really want to get a sense of you know whether the training actually works this way or not it's a question we can look to science to help answer and of course that's where sort of the lab at dc comes in right and so we're taking two different ways to approach that question of whether the training is having the desired effect So the first is looking at officer attitudes. So does the training actually shift their attitudes? And we're conducting three waves of a survey. So we issued a survey before most of our officers began the training, and that was back in last February. We did one at the midpoint this past summer when about half the force has completed the training and the other half had heard about it. And then we have one coming up later this month when most of our patrol officers and sergeants will be wrapped up in the training. And the goal here is to see across these different time points, do officer attitudes shift as A, they go through training, and as more of their colleagues have been through training, and so we have the, is there sort of a force multiplier effect as well? So we're trying to track that here, and we're looking at things like, do you feel greater affinity with your citizens now that you better understand their experience? Do you better grasp that history of oppression that this uniform has represented in the past, and how might that shape some of your attitudes about policing and the communities you're working in? We're also, since it's a lab, we're also doing a randomized evaluation. We're hoping to better understand the behavioral effects of the training, And so here we essentially randomly assigned our officers to go to the training at different times of the year. So every group that goes through in a given month is part of a single cluster. As they go over time, the cluster converts from a control cluster to a treated cluster. And so in this way, we're able to still do a randomized evaluation and measure a causal effect of the training, while also making sure we meet the department's requirements that everybody actually completes the training over the course of this year, because this is part of their annual professional development training. And then in terms of the outcomes we're going to measure comparing the control and treatment groups, if you're familiar with the lab's body camera study, a lot of these outcomes won't be too different. So use of force, citizen complaints... The more discretionary sort of arrests, things like disorderly conduct, simple assault, things like that, traffic stops, stop incidents. We're also looking at officer performance, which here we measure as how much sick leave you're taking and things like that. And then we're also looking at proactivity and engagement by looking at calls for service that you initiated rather than being dispatched to. So again, these are not all perfect measures, but this is the administrative data we have available to us, and so we're leveraging that data to help understand whether the program is working as hoped for. In addition, we also plan to conduct some supplementary analyses to look at things like spillover effects and heterogeneous effects. So this is something like, does the training affect certain types of officers more than others? Like if you have certain time on the force, if you're a certain background, if you're working in a particular district, things along those lines. This, I think, though, is an interesting question, right? It's a really important question. We know how we can sort of attempt to measure the effects of the training, but those findings and interpreting those findings into understanding whether the training itself is actually successful is a much more difficult question to answer, right? And I actually would love to hear from the audience. We're not just testing a hypothesis here for the sake of it. We really want to inform decisions around, you know, do we push this training to every generation of our police officers. Is there something in the particular calibration of it that's working really well? Is there something about the content or the delivery that if we tweak it just a little bit this way or a little bit that way, it would be that much more effective? So we're really hoping to elicit information from our study that can help inform decision makers on these types of questions, but that's actually quite a tremendous challenge. And I'm curious, if you're a decision maker, you're putting yourselves in the shoes of the chief of police, and trying to decide how we continue with this training, you know, what considerations would you want to have answers to, right? Like, what would success mean to you? If you take a hypothetical, like, we really want to reduce use of force, and this training will help us get there, we really want to reduce complaints, and this training will help us get there, how many complaints would have to be reduced for you to feel like this is successful? And those are, I think, really challenging questions that we kind of grapple with, given the space we're working in, and I would love to hear more from the audience about your thoughts on kind of what you would want to know to decide that the program is indeed successful.
2: So we're going to have our entire panel able to answer any of your questions. I want to thank all the panelists. Thank you for being candid and sharing this information with us. And you can go ahead and just
10: introduce yourself and ask questions to any of the panelists. Hi, thanks. I wanted to ask, I'm a historian, so I love to hear about people learning about history that they don't know about. But I feel like almost like this program almost over historicizes the issue and saying like we were, you know, policing was considered like inherently racist up until through the 90s. But now that's not the way it is anymore. And we want to make sure that's what we represent. And I'm just wondering, in the course of the education piece, do officers get to hear from community members who are experiencing policing today and some of those things that are still playing out? And then I also wanted to ask, in terms of measuring success, I would think that success for officers might sometimes conflict with success for the department. We know that, say, more than, I think, 80% of stop-and-frisk incidents um, involve African-Americans in the city, but we only have a 47% African-American population. So that's one example where it seems like the department's measures of success might require something that's not necessarily what we want.
4: All right. So one thing we ought to keep in context here is that this training is only a piece of the information that's giving to our officers. There's an overwhelming expectation from our chief that every member of the department fully and clearly understands is that we're about constitutional unbiased policing at the metropolitan police department so going into the training understanding that that's our goal is important and that happens the second thing is is that a lot of what you're talking about and hearing from the residents and people who have been impacted by the police happen at the recruit level and at a program we have called Policing for Tomorrow, where we actually bring speakers in who are from all of our communities and have had various interactions with the police. And they have very hard discussions about policing locally and nationally and how we're impacting communities by the methods that police have historically used. I can tell you, we put a lot of effort into making sure that we do not use those methods and that we target our policing towards the people who are preying on our communities so policing is a tough thing because to be a successful police officer you have to make sure that community feels safe at a department and to be a successful chief and it's walking a line and the more educated you are in the areas of the african-american history that they're learning and just your general communities as a whole will make you a better department and a better officer at that level
3: If I can just jump in here a little bit as well. So every single week we hear feedback from the officers. The professors shared We hear directly from letters from the officers, emails, social media posts, et cetera, about their experience. If you think they're trying to cover 400 years of history in 10 hours, that's roughly 40 years per hour. That's an incredibly fast pace to move through it. We've been working based on the feedback from Dr. Demchak and Dr. Thompson on a part two to this program. So we're over halfway through training all the members on our department. We're already starting the phase two. And the phase two is really to start pulling in members of the community to be a part of kind of a more intentional dialogue between law enforcement and members of the community about these topics and others. And and really, you know, you heard the officers talk about the role the police officers play in community building. I very much believe that. And I think to that same extent, coupling officers with community members that are very involved in these issues will see large dividends in terms of the needle moving from perception of law enforcement as well as the safety of our community.
5: And just in terms of the history of it all, we definitely look at continuity over time. So we don't stop with the civil rights movement. I do a whole presentation on just photographs where I show photographs from Black codes, moving into Jim Crow laws, but also going up into Ferguson. And what I have the officers do is describe what they see in those photographs. I don't give them any context for it. What are you seeing here? What is going on? And you know, I now go probably too far. And I say, Well, I'm on the phone. I can't see the photograph. Describe what's going on in the photograph. And we get to the end, and they say, Well, Those pictures are really no different from what we saw, was going on in the 60s and the 70s. So we definitely wrap in continuity, looking at information that we gather from Baltimore Rising. So it's not like we stop at the civil rights movement. We discuss contemporary issues as well. Actually, one of my last questions is, where are we? Are we moving forward? Are we standing still? Are we moving backwards? And when I tell you, we get to the museum every day late because of that conversation. So...
8: Also, just as a reminder, the training also incorporates civilian members of the department. So they bring forth their insight, speaking as not only just employees of the department, but as residents as well. And our department, we engage the public in a variety of ways. We have ride-alongs. We work hand-in-hand with civilians. It's a myriad of things. So we're not disconnected or in a bubble, per se, that we don't know or have the ability to engage and be familiar with what's actually going on out there.
11: All right, I wanna make sure we have time for some other questions, so. Thank you, I really like this. I live in DC and I've actually had all kinds of police interactions, been lucky they've been all good. So I'm an anecdote, obviously there's issues uh, that are actually affecting people. And my background is in data science and geospatial analysis. And I was going to ask you if you were using any granular impact analysis, like regression analysis, around where arrests are happening, when they're happening. Are they moving with the population shift? I actually just finished doing impact of poverty and gentrification, their mix, and where the crime's happening, where it happened before, where it's happening now. Actually, the murder rate last year was, what, up by 60 some percent all happening in pretty much where the African-American population is. In addition to that, there is ways to measure success using statistically sound and significant methods so that you're not just leaving it to feelings. So I wanted to ask you about a little bit more, what kind of statistical methods are you using?
9: Yeah, that's a great question. And again, I didn't want to dive too deep into the details in this particular presentation, given the timing. But we will have a full pre-analysis plan that documents in a lot of detail exactly the answer to your question about the specific statistical models and things like that. We wanted to use this lunch as an opportunity to get additional feedback into that plan before we post it. But you can rest assured that that will be available on the lab's Open Science Framework website once it's finalized. And we certainly welcome feedback at that moment as well for people to take a look See, Are we missing outcomes of interest? Are there additional questions we might be able to leverage this opportunity to answer? So I will just start with that, and we can chat afterwards. And then the other piece I'll add, you asked about kind of more general analytics in the police department. Yes, I am one of a much bigger team of analysts at the police department that focus on a lot of those questions. So my work focuses primarily on the evaluation piece, but we do have a lot of folks looking at exactly that type of stuff. I think we have one more question here.
12: Hello. Hi. Thank you for the panel. My name is Cameron Okeke. I'm with the Urban Institute. We do research and analysis on policing. Uh, And we have a project called the National Institute for Community Trust and Justice, where we measure trainings, not similar to this, but large trainings on implicit bias. And one question I have is about retention. So how exactly are you ensuring that what you learn in a 10-hour training retains throughout the process? Because I think the theory of change really kind of hinges on these attitudes becoming behaviors and those behaviors precipitating into like cultural changes and the systems change from the bottom up. But we know from implicit bias trainings and several other trainings we've done, we evaluated that that doesn't tend to happen like it diffuses out. Also, when it comes to the outcome measures, second question, have you considered having community gatherings where community members determine what outcome measures matter to them or doing residential surveys to see how the community is feeling it? Because at the end of the day, who do you serve?
9: Thank you. Those are great questions. With the second one, yes, we would love to do community surveys. It's not Currently, part of the project plan due to resource limitations, but I am hoping that in the future, again, that's one of those things that, like, what are we not measuring that might matter a lot, right? And so, community perception is certainly part of it. And I think phase two of the training sounds like it will help gear towards a little bit more grasping of that information. This is our first sort of public discussion of the evaluation plan. We absolutely plan to do additional conversations, just like we did around the body camera study, laying out this analysis plan and looking for that feedback about other questions and outcomes that people care to see. And to the extent, again, that we can get that data and answer it, we will.
8: I think also it is important, especially for supervisors and managers to be mindful of that and look for that in our troops and to monitor that and to address whatever issues that there may be. Actually have those conversations within our troops and provide, other than supervision, the coaching and mentoring that comes along with leadership and not only within supervisors and managers but also our field training officers, our master patrol officers, our ambassadors in the community, just addressing those things alone so there is a level of accountability that is just not falling on deaf ears.
3: One of the things that's really stood out to me is as I've talked with members of the community and I've run our department's Community Engagement Academy for a number of years now, as I've shared this program and talked with community members from all across the district and C leaders and just concerned citizens. There is a similar interest between the officers and the members of the community. Really, as we're talking about phase two, and as we've had conversations, phase one, we'd love to bring members of the community through with us as well. Unfortunately, we have two professors and limited resources to try to get 4,600 people through. And so as we look towards that phase two piece, it's really, you know, getting the members of the community and the officers involved in that discussion, because I think for a lot of officers, it's the knowledge that leads to the change, right? They've learned a few additional pieces. I know for myself, you know, even as I went through, all of a sudden I started saying, every one of these roads has history. I need to know that, I need to look into this. And I know for a lot of the officers, they've written us to this fact as well, that they've spent more time learning about the history of the communities they serve. And so that might not be everyone, And that might not be even that widespread. But even if some officers start to, you know, learn about the histories of their community, if some of our supervisors take this and really kind of reinforce this message, and I know the professors have shared some of the supervisors' reactions. So really, from every level of the organization, there's some involvement in this topic. And because the training spread over such a long time, the individual officer might only go through one time but other people are going through over this kind of two-year spread. And so that conversation builds, oh, I went to the museum today. Oh, what did you learn? So you start kind of having the messages that were learned reinforced because it's not just a one-day, one-time or an online module where we say, hey, everyone's got that, great, now we're moving on. It's really kind of part of a conversation. And so really, again, talking about different communities that have been historically underserved by the police. And so this is really part of a broader movement as we look at training across the department.
8: And it also creates conversation. If I could just add real quick, you can go to anyone on the department and ask them, did you attend this training? What did you get out of it? Because everybody has gone through it, both sworn in civilian. It's a training that creates a conversation that you can have with us.
2: Thank you. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation today. I think we've learned a lot about this training program, and we've heard just directly from the Metropolitan Police Department on how you plan to engage and continue this training and reduce any type of implicit bias that may be occurring. It's been an honor to be here today. It's great to hear from all of you.
9: Thank you all so much. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producers are Carissa Minnick and Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab_dc. underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.